being a woman, whether or not one has children. The connection, um, the heart that, that gives, the heart that nurtures, the heart that protects and gives life, it's an incredible reflection of the image of God, born by men and women. So thank you, Heidi, and thank you, moms, and thank you to all the women who are here this morning. You are loved. This morning, as we continue in our series on family matters, rather than focus on moms exclusively, I want to speak about the importance of women and how we as followers of Jesus can support and encourage more freedom for the women in our lives and in our church. A while back, I remember suggesting to a female pastor that maybe it would be foolish of me as a man to be the one speaking on such a subject, and her reply was something like, there was two things. First, she's like, hey, um, first of all, Doug, you're going to try to make a woman work on Mother's Day? Come on, man. Um, Second was maybe a little more serious, uh, and she said actually something like, actually, it's very important that men who support uh, women, um, that men will advocate and speak up whenever they have an opportunity, and so here we are. Can you pull the level down just a little more? I'm getting some feedback on the gain up here. I'll talk louder. How's that? There we go. Um, so, by, by the way, I, I'm, I'm aware that there are very few subjects in the church even that are more fraught with, you know, landmines and greater disagreement than what we're going to touch on this morning. It's, and what we're going to talk about is the nature and the roles of men and women, and it's still uh, kind of a hot topic in our day here. It's been a source of great contention and consternation for a long, long time, even in the past hundred years, although we here in the U.S. have come a long, long ways, but if we're paying attention we know that there's a long ways to go. I mean, just in American history, uh, in the last 100 years, did you know that it wasn't until 1920 that women were allowed to vote in the U.S.? And the reason behind it was that there was a general belief that they, <clears throat> women, lacked sufficient intelligence and maturity to have a say in who governed them, right? Somewhere between laughing and horrifying, right? It's like, really? People believed that, yeah. Until the 19th century, in many states, women could not own property by law. Um, and until the 20th century, men were allowed by law in several states to still use physical violence to chastise their wives. It's just crazy that it has taken that long. Now, back up globally, and in many countries, it is still acceptable for husbands to use physical violence against their wives. Remember last week we had Anna and Nan Ho here. Anna's the executive director, the founder of Reconciled World, and she spoke and she was telling us some great stories about what God's doing in the global church family around the world. Lots of good, encouraging stuff but also mentioned stories of violence against women and how it seemed as normal in many places, even by people that would call themselves educated, even in other places by people that would call themselves Christian. And I actually worked on staff with Reconciled World for about two years before coming on staff here at Hope, and one of the ministries that we led there covered this exact topic, uh, and, and we called that ministry Ending Gendercide. See, not everybody here in the USA is aware of some of what goes on uh, to this day. In China and in India, uh, sons are much more highly valued than daughters, and so ultrasound is sometimes used to determine the sex of a fetus so that the females can be aborted or poisoned at birth. And this is so rampant and causing such a shortage of women that India finally made it illegal for a medical staff to tell the expectant parents whether it was a boy or a girl being born. 
Now, of course, that just created another way for, for dishonest um, medical staff to receive bribes and then tell the parents so that if it was a girl, they could still abort. And it is, it is horrifying. It is really sad. And um, what happens in India, it was over there a couple of years, what happens in India is that when a baby girl, or when a baby is born in the hospital, if it's a boy, then the family is greeted with presents and showered with gifts. But if it's a girl, many times, at best, the family treats it like a curse has come on them, like a death has happened, and they just don't say anything at all. This still goes on in our day, right now, right here. In fact, they have done some incredible things at Reconciled World with this ministry where, where they started, we started enlisting church people and Christians to say, hey, when a baby girl is born, let's show up at the hospital and shower them with gifts. And they've been doing that, and it, has, it is shifting some of the culture in some of those places, but it's still sad. Not only is there confusion about injustice and, and things around the globe towards women, there's disagreement here in the USA within churches, so shifted a long way, about just the roles of women. Now, some of you might know this, and some of you might not, that in, in many churches and denominations, there are restrictions on a woman's participation in the life of a church community. For example, in some churches, women are not allowed to be a part of elder boards. In some churches, women are not allowed to use teaching gifts if there's a man in the room. They are not allowed to be pastors. In some churches, women aren't even allowed to usher or baptize or lead small groups. We would be in a lot of trouble if we went that way here at Hope for many reasons. We have incredibly wonderful and strong gifted ladies leading here. Back in 1941, a, a guy, a pastor named John Rice, wrote a book called, get this, Bobbed Hair, Bossy Wives, and Women Preachers. I'm sure it was a bestseller on Amazon, right? Yeah. It's actually re-released in 2000, I discovered, when I was looking at a slide for it this morning. Uh, in the book, he wrote, I have no doubt that millions will go to hell because of the unscriptural practice of women preachers. So, happy Mother's Day, right? <laughs> Woo, this is fun. Listen, there is good news, okay? That's a lot of the bad news. But I didn't want to set up this morning's message by ignoring the fact that there's stuff going on at every level around our world. And not everybody holds the same values that we do here uh, within the Evangelical Covenant denomination or within our church here at Hope. And I'm sure we don't get it right every time either. But I think that the, this, the mistreatment of women and, and the limitations even that get placed on women, it, it stems from wrong beliefs, outright lies uh, sometimes that people believe, especially men believe, and even sometimes women believe, that allow this stuff to go on. And instead of the church being a place where we are all together pushing forward into the kingdom, oftentimes what happens is we get divided and we keep women out. So instead of advancing the kingdom of God the way we could, we got half the, half the army that's not allowed to do a bunch of this stuff. So I want to shine a light on just an area of this with the hope that it's going to bring some freedom and reaffirm some of the things that we hold true here at Hope Covenant. And the real question that I want to touch on this morning is, what is God's design for women and men? Like, what's his intention? And I think this is a really important question. And for some people, it's controversial. Um, someday I want to do an entire series, like a month or two maybe, in a class where we teach on this and unpack because there's so much to look at. I would love to have Fran and Yvonne and some of our other teachers help that because there's a lot of scriptures to look at in context and go in depth. 
Um, and we can't do that on just a Sunday morning or two. So that's my disclaimer, by the way. Um, this is uh, not the end-all, be-all sermon on men and women, and I'm not going to even hit a fraction of what I wish I could uh, in terms of what the Bible says and teaches, but I want to get us thinking about this. Um, and by the way, everything that we teach from the pulpit here at Hope Covenant, I guess this is a music stand, that just sounds weird. Everything we teach from the music stand here at Hope Covenant, <laughs> it's, all based, it's all based on scripture. Every week we look together at what the Bible says because the Bible studied carefully in its entirety, in its context. The Bible's our authoritative guide as a church. And that's our commitment here, that the Bible, not culture, not trends, not society, but scripture is our authority and we put our trust in it. And we don't want to duck any issues or evade tough questions, and so I'm going to do my best uh, to hit stuff straight on, whether it's this week or any other week. And what I want to do is ask us here at Hope Covenant um, that when we approach subjects like this, where there are differences of opinion, that we have a spirit of humility um, and, and community together, all of us. Like, we're not going to be splitting, we're not going to argue about this, we're gonna, not going to be nasty to each other if we disagree, okay? Deal? Yeah. Okay. And I'll love you even if you disagree with me, because even though you're wrong, that's okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this, this is one of those areas I want to say up front, good Christians disagree, right? And it's understandable why people come with the best of intentions, um, but what happens sometimes when we disagree uh, is we get contentious. We get stubborn. Sadly, I get that way sometimes. Um, and when that happens, it really damages the body of Christ. So we can't do that here. We're not going to have that kind of spirit running loose around this place. Hope is not that kind of dividing place. So agree or not, I'm just asking all of us um, to sit with this in a spirit of humility, recognizing all of us are fallible, and we don't have every little thing sorted out perfectly, even though we like to think that we do. Um, so here we go. Uh, men and women, again, it's, it can be really confusing. Even from the time we're young, we can get confused about what this means. I, I heard about a book called Children's Letters to God. And in this book, one child wrote, Dear God, one little girl wrote, Dear God, are boys better than girls? I know you are one, <laughs> but please try to be fair, right? <laughs> right? Cute and, and, and maybe a little sad too, right? But, but if you will turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to spend our time this morning in Genesis right in the beginning. We're going to go men and women in the beginning. And we'll have to talk about this next week too, but now you're warned. <clears throat> this week, um, in the beginning, we're looking at creation. And these first two chapters of Genesis, I think, are crucial because it gives us a glimpse. What did God mean? What was his original intention when he created men and women? So in Genesis 1 and 2, um, they're really important on this question. Why did God create human beings as male and female, like two genders, in the first place? Right? What was his original idea? Was it so that one of them would be in charge? Was that God's original plan? was waiting for Bruce to say yes, but okay, he's, he's, he's staying, you're behaving this week, okay. You did, <laughs> there's a story. Now there's this little phrase that runs through the beginning of Genesis where God is creating and he does all these things, and I won't read the entire passage, but this phrase repeats time after time. So after God would create another part of completing a creation of some part and bringing it into being, it says, God spoke, God saw that it was so, and God saw that it was good. 
And if you just read the first chapter of Genesis, verses 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, that little refrain just echoes through there. God spoke, God saw that it was so, and God saw that it was good. So we keep reading this, and it's really jarring by the time you come to Genesis 2.18. It's been good, 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 good. And remember, this is all before the fall of man, before we ever disobeyed. Genesis 2.18 says, the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Hmm. Remember, like all the way through the scripture here, all good, 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 good. God said it was so, and it was good, good, good. But suddenly there's this jarring stop to it in verse 18. And God says, it is not good. Aloneness, God is saying, is not good. And by the way, this would be a question worthy of an entire teaching, but this verse does not mean that if you're single, if you're not married, that you're missing out. Like some people send that message to single folks, and it's not helpful, helpful nor is it biblical. So this passage here, pointing to the truth that God created this human being, Adam, with the capacity for relationship and oneness, just as God himself is three and yet one. That's part of the significance of the doctrine of the Trinity. There's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet knows perfect, God knows perfect oneness, perfect community within himself. One theologian that I read said, God loves community so much that he created human beings to be able to have the capacity for oneness as well, for community. So he creates man, but man has no one like himself to experience human community with. So, it says in verse 18, I will make, God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. You might want to circle that word, helper. That's a source of great interest and confusion, a helper, okay? Now, in the Hebrew, um, when you translate it from the Hebrew, when God creates Eve, that word, helper, is translated azar konegdo. It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make him an azar konegdo. Now, I want to say a little bit about that, um, the helper thing, okay? See, when I grew up, I'm embarrassed to say that somewhere along the line, I assumed that helper meant that, you know, God made the woman to be kind of a junior assistant for the man, right? Like, I, I, honestly, I thought maybe the idea here was God had a, uh, that, that man, sorry, man had a lot to do, but he couldn't get all the tasks done himself, so God gave him sort of this gopher that he could delegate some stuff to, you know, somebody lower on the org chart who could get stuff done around the house while he was out subduing the earth, right? I'm telling you, I'm embarrassed that I thought that. Okay, don't, don't worry. It's not what I think anymore. Now, Hebrew scholar Robert Alter, who spent years translating just the book of Genesis from Hebrew, he says that phrase, that word, is notoriously difficult to translate. Uh, in most of your Bibles, the translations in English are, God made a helper or a companion or the notorious helpmeet. Um, one woman that I read, and she would never describe herself even as a feminist, but she asked, why are all these translations so incredibly wimpy, boring, flat, and disappointing? What is a help meet anyway? Like, she said, what little girl dances through the house singing, one day I shall be a help meet? <laughs> I wish I knew the Frozen tunes a little better, but I don't think that's in there. Um, or, or, or even the word companion. Companion, Stacey Eldridge points out. A dog can be a companion. And helper sounds like hamburger helper. She's right, right? So there's the problem with this understanding, this Hebrew word, azer. The word that's translated helper gets used another of, umber uh, another of other times in the Old Testament. Easy for me to say, yeah. 
Um, anybody want to guess all the other times when that word azer is used in the Old Testament, who that word, that helper, azer word is referring to? Bingo, God, yes, right? The word that we translate helper here in Genesis, everywhere else that it gets used, it's, it's describing God. And so this Hebrew scholar, Robert Alter, he, I think he's getting close when he translates it this way. He says, the sustainer, right? She is the sustainer, the lifesaver beside him. That is what azer means. The Hebrew word azer, I read, is used only 20 other places in the entire Old Testament. In every other instance, besides here in Genesis 2, the person being described is God. And it's used when you need him to come through for you desperately. I'm going to run through four or five verses where that azer word is used just to show us what's being described with the whole helper deal here. Deuteronomy 33. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides on the heavens to help, to azer you. Or in Deuteronomy uh, verse 29 of uh, 33. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and your azer, your helper, and your glorious sword. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hill. Where does my azer, my help, come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Or in Psalm 20. May, may the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you azer, help. Psalm 33, we wait in hope for the Lord, for he is our azer, our help, and our shield. And it goes on from there. Now, if that word, azer, is most often used for God, then clearly here the word helper doesn't mean somebody who's lower on the status chain, right? Uh, they're not lower than the one they're helping because everywhere else God is referred to as a helper. And most of the context, if we would keep reading, uh, their life and death, by the way, where God is your only help, your only hope uh, of just even making it through. He's your azer. Like, like if he is not there beside you, you're dead. You're not going to make it. So uh, Alter says a better translation of azer would be lifesaver. And kinego means alongside or opposite to a counterpart. So this azer, this, this helper word, when referring to God or woman, is something profound and powerful, not secondary, not diminished, certainly not a gopher or a junior assistant. So what God's saying in this verse, I will make a lifesaver, a counterpart to come alongside him. That's what God made when he made a helper for Adam. Now, notice something else. This is really important to the Genesis 2 text. What is the woman supposed to azer, uh, to help the man with? Like, God doesn't say, well, you know, Adam's not getting his chores done, so I'm going to give an employee here to help him out, right? Again, look back at um, Genesis 2.18. God says, it's not good for man to be what? Alone. For man to be alone. Therefore, right, for that reason, I will make a suitable helper. See, one of the big reasons that, that God made human beings was so that we would experience community, relationship. God loves community. 
He experiences it within himself, within the Trinity, and he made human beings. He made us able to experience it. But Adam couldn't experience community on his own, and he couldn't experience true community with with animals. So when God created the woman to be a suitable helper, it wasn't to help him get his chores done. It was to help him experience relationship and connectedness and community. It was not an employee issue. It was community, a relationship issue. So she was created as Adam's peer. They were equally indispensable. Each of them was required if the human race was ever going to pursue God's goal of community, which is, by the way, the very thing that is part of our mission as a church here at Hope, where where people belong, where we experience biblical community, which has been God's plan from the very beginning. Now, we're going to back up here, back into Genesis 1 verse 27, because this next thought is expressed there, and I just want to spend a minute on this. Um, So God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them, right? So God created human beings in his image, male and female, he created them. Now, part of what we see in this is a, a, a poetic device in Hebrew literature that's parallelism. So right here, you would have a phrase and then the parallel, right? So over here, it was God created human beings in his image. And then how, the parallel is, male and female, he created them. So we're made in the image of God and we're created male and female. And somehow those two ideas apparently reflect each other. Like God experiences in his image true community And he intends for men and women to experience that oneness as well, just like he does. So he made us to experience community life together. And this is really important, I think, because sometimes people will say things about, you know, marriage, for instance. Well, somebody's got to be in charge around here, right? Friends, like, do, do you think it's like that in the Trinity? Like, do we think there's a lot of arguments going on in the Trinity where the Father and Son are holy saying, hey, I want to be the most omnipotent. And it's like, no, you were yesterday. It's my turn today, right? Yeah, it's just, it's not like that. I mean, even think about what is life like in the Trinity. I mean, that's something to give some reflection to. What, what must it be like for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity? Like to live together in perfect love. Uh, And they delight to serve each other, to pour themselves out for one another. I mean, again, think, what must life be like in that relationship? And so God experiences this perfect community within himself. And then he makes us to experience those same kinds of connections with each other. So it's not about who's in charge, who makes the final decisions. All right, next verse God gives the command. Look at how Genesis uh, 1.28 says it. I call it the creation mandate. And I want you to notice in the creation mandate to whom this command that he gives, who does he give this command to? Verse 28. And God blessed who? What's it say? Them. And said to who? Them. Them. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over every seed-bearing plant. And then God goes on to talk about earth and creation and caring for the world. And what I want to notice here is that the text right there, the verse is really careful to say that God gives the mandate to rule and reign or have dominion over the earth to both them, right? The man and the woman, to them. 
Like, there's no hint in the text here of any sort of hierarchy of responsibilities. It doesn't say here that the man's supposed to have dominion or authority over the woman, but they're both to have dominion over the earth. And so this morning, ladies, those of you uh, who are here that, that are women, okay, let there be no doubt about your worth in God's eyes. You were created and made in his image, and you were made to rule and reign and take care of this world that God entrusted to us. Now, you were not made to reign over man, and you were not made to be reigned over by man, but to rule and work side by side, male and female, to develop to its fullest potential this incredible world, this creation, the planet that God gave to us and asked us to steward and take care of for him. Now, what I just said there, there's some debate over what I just said in, in other circles of Christianity, but my belief and our shared conviction as a church and, and the evangelical covenant denomination family is that men and women are to share dominion, ruling and reigning together over this world together. Now, I want to bring up another uh, issue related to this Genesis passage that people try to look at. Sometimes people will say... Um, well, listen, because man was made first and woman was made second, that implies that, you know, the rule of order, that, that, that man is superior, right? So since he was made first, he gets to go first. Uh, some actually call it the rule of divine order. Now, the problem with thinking, well, whoever's made first is more important or superior or hierarchically better, the problem with that is um, if you back up a little bit, you think about that, who did God make before man? Oh, the animals, right? The animals. So you can't use that argument. Well, man was made first, so that's why he leads and covers and all the other pieces of that. Because um, if you flip it backwards like that, then you know, you'd be like, all right, so God made animals first. Then he made man. And man was an improvement over the animals, right? But then God said, I'm done warming up, and he made woman. Ta-da! Right? Just a little bit of applause on that. Now, <clears throat> see what the truth is, right? There's no superiority one way or the other. It's not about superiority. Being made first has nothing to do with anything. See, because men and women were intended, it gets wonky here, we'll talk about in a minute. They were, made, they were intended to be equal and rule together in the image of God, together to share in dominion over creation and this world God entrusted to us. And I think that that's the best way to understand these opening chapters of Genesis. This was God's original intent, right? Before the fall, right? Men and women created equally in God's image, created to know like he does, intimacy and community with one another, and meant to share dominion or rulership, taking care of the world together. But then, Genesis chapter 3 comes the fall. In Genesis 3, there's disobedience, there's the fall, and then the pronouncement, if you know the story, comes after that. It's the curse. And the curse that comes is an announcement by God of the consequences that happen because of the fall, because of humankind's decision to go our own way and betray the heart of God. And in the curse, if we were to read it, there are many things that get lost, right? There's a loss of innocence. People are going to be alienated from their labor. We will now work by the sweat of our brows, it says. And by the way, before the fall, friends, there was work. There was, but there was no frustration attached to it, right? But now, in the curse, 
there's frustration. We're alienated from work, and we all experience that. Another consequence of the fall is death. Another consequence of the fall is the lack of oneness. And then in Genesis 3.16 specifically, God says this to the woman. He said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing, and with pain you will give birth to children. I mean, just think about all that happens in childbirth. Like, it's Mother's Day after all, right, ladies? Yeah. Would you say that childbirth was easy? Guys, don't get in trouble, right? Okay. Ladies, though, right? Yeah. Not so much. Not so much. Um, Fellas, have have you, men, dads, have you ever said anything, you know, stupid during your wife's pregnancy or worse, right? Anyone? Hands are all down. The wives, you could raise your hand and say, yes, he did. Yeah. We'll tell stories later. But that whole deal, all the pain in that, it's part of the curse. Now, look at the next line of the next verse here. God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is a part of the curse, right? And this is what I want us to notice and see about this in the little bit of time that we have left. See, again, when I was growing up, I often heard this line taught as if this were God's original intention for human beings. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you like that's God's best arrangement, then the husband is somehow then the boss, right? People read this in wedding ceremonies, like (laughs) you're reading the curse in your wedding ceremony. Um, Okay. But if we read this, again, in the context of what we've looked at so far in the story, it's clearly not a part of God's original intent before the fall. It's a part of the curse, right? This pronouncement of God is a part of the curse, just like pain in childbirth, just like alienation from labor, and the curse is not a good thing. It's not something to be embraced or celebrated and lived out. Like, the results of the curse are not good, and they will be overturned one day. That's what's supposed to happen, not for us to embrace them or teach them like it's God's divine intention for relationships. And so that is a part of the fall. That's a part of the curse. And the curse, you understand, is what Christ came to redeem us from, to set us free from, to take the curse on himself so we would be liberated from it. So friends, like we have a choice in how we live. Like don't live the curse. See, the idea of one gender ruling over the other was not God's plan laid out from the beginning of creation. According to the text here, it's clearly a part of the curse, just like pain and childbirth and alienation from work. And because of the fall, the relationship between male and female, which was supposed to be oneness, became a power struggle and often filled with pain. And if you know the story, the next thing happens is blame comes into the picture, right? The man says, it's all the woman's fault. And, you know, God asks, hey, Adam, what have you done? And Adam says, well, God, this woman that you gave me, right? So, so right there, blame and shame enter this conflict between men and women. And I just want to pause and say something here. Maybe you're here this morning and you have been hurt or maybe you're being hurt by someone of the opposite sex. Maybe you're in a relationship Maybe you're in a marriage and you are locked in a power struggle. You're stubbornly insisting on having your own way. And what happens pretty quickly is we get hearts that are filled with lingering resentment and bitterness. The enemy gets that foothold, builds a stronghold, and now we've got big trouble. And and if you're experiencing any of that, please just remember, guys, men and women are not enemies. 
Your husband, your wife is not your enemy. Our enemy is the evil one. He's the one that struck at the oneness between men and women from the beginning. And that happened way back in Genesis. And we still carry the fallout of that. So right now, in this church family, or maybe in your work, maybe in your marriage, the evil one does not want there to be friendship, respect, or honor between male and female. Again, Satan hates community. So I just want to ask you that if you're locked in that kind of hurtful power struggle, that kind of relationship, I believe that some of us may need to reflect on God calling us to an attitude change, a softening of the heart, a repentance. Because there's nothing more than the evil one loves to do than push that divide. Again, inequality the loss of community between the sexes. It's a part of the curse and part of what Jesus came to redeem. Uh, And what he did was to come to redeem us from that curse so that men and women could know the full joy of community and partnership for us to be full of dignity, equal image bearers of this God who placed his image in us. And what we're going to look at next week is this movement that Jesus started. Um, We're going to talk about Jesus and his views and treatment of women. And hopefully we'll have time then to talk about women in the early church as well. Because Jesus was really unique by um, his day standards in, in how he treated women, especially as a rabbi. Like he was one of a kind. It's a new day for women. So we're going to look at how that played out and how Jesus would have advocated for women and justice and equality even back then. And so as we close here, I just want to ask you a question, just sort of this landing point this morning. Um, This is between you and God now. It's not between you and me or you and the church. This is between you and God. Here's a couple questions I'd like you to carry over the next couple weeks as we spend just a couple weeks on this theme. And this is a question I'm asking me as well. Will you allow God's word to form your own understanding and attitude about the role of relationships between men and women? Will we submit to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit on this one the best that we can? And the second question is maybe even harder. Will each of us be willing to recognize where we are contributing to the battle of the genders, where we're partnering with the curse, like by bringing judgments or division in our thoughts and treatments of women and of men? Because maybe some of us are involved in really ugly battles with someone or some ones of the opposite sex, male or female. Maybe they're pushing for dominance and power. Maybe you're a woman who's angry. You've been handling that anger in inappropriate ways or pushing for something more than equality. Maybe it's been a reaction, an understandable one, to the pain that's been caused to you by some men, and so you want control. Or maybe some of us, both men and women, we've had wounds from a relationship with a spouse or an ex-spouse or a parent that has colored your whole attitude on this issue and and we just need to come with hearts ready for some openness and healing. And for some of us, maybe there's just this stubborn thing inside of you and I know what this feels like. You just dug in, you don't want to change on any of this. Let's just ask for tender hearts, open minds. Will will you do that with me this week? And we'll commit that we're not going to argue about this. We want to live in freedom and forgiveness brought by Jesus instead of living out the curse. Because, friends, when men and women work together, amazing things happen. Like, it doesn't matter who digs the garden. It doesn't matter who cleans up after the kids. This is more than that. This is biblical partnership 
And this is what the church gets to look like. We get to win the world together in unity and harmony as men and women together. We combine our lives, men and women, to make the devil sorry that he started the mess in the first place. And what can be seen by us when we partner and love each other that way and just work it out even when it's hard is we reflect the beauty, the glory of God in our relationships. That's what being Christian men and Christian women is all about. In fact, Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate azer rescuer. He came, he gave his life to free us from the curse. So no matter what's happened to you, no matter what you have done or has been done to you, Jesus is the azer who has rescued us and made us sons and daughters of God. And so we get to leave that curse behind. We stand with me for a closing prayer and the benediction. Father, there's so much here. There is so much going on that stirs within each one of us. But wherever we find ourselves, whether there's been pain that we have caused or pain caused to us, wherever it's confusing, wherever some of us maybe have felt limited or felt deficient or that who we are isn't okay, Lord, will you start to bring healing to our hearts? Will you show us and remind us that you are our our good father, that we are free, that we are children of God, that we are ransomed, that your grace runs deep, even into places of pain and confusion like this. May, May we see that in our Father's house, that there is a place for each one of us, that you have chosen us, you've not forsaken us, that you are for us, you are not against us. And will you bring us humble hearts that are open to your words, your presence in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.